All right. Let's, um, the only announcement that I have that I can think of is that uh, early voting is started this week, and I've had it reported. I think Betty said Tuesday, uh, Tuesday night that there were 123 categories, you know, choices on the ballot. And I know there's about 65 or just judges. And it depends on where you are. And there's 10 propositions. And I don't know about you all, but my opinion is that, that all, they're all related to raising money for one thing or another. And that just means taxes, even though they call it all kinds of other things. And I'm not ever in favor of taxes. So that's just my opinion. Nobody else has to follow my opinion on that. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord as we are walking by means of the Spirit and taking in the Word of God. Then God the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in order to mature us and so that we can grow and bear fruit. And that's the Christian life. It's just not necessarily all this whiz-bang emotionalism that people think it ought to be. It's just steady, plodding along, doing what we're supposed to do every day, making the right decisions. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our nation tonight. We pray that we might have leaders elected who are wise, who understand our Constitution, who are in favor of the Constitution, who desire to support the Constitution. And, Father, that you would expose the evil machinations of those who wish to uh, defraud the voters by uh, corrupting the election process. And we pray that you would expose Uh, their uh, plots and their evil. Father, we pray that we might continue to be a beacon of light because though we are seem to be near the bottom of the barrel, we're on top of everybody else. And Father, we pray that we might continue to be a source of missionaries and support for Israel. But Father, we know that there's going to be a generation where wherein you are going to be pulling out the restraints to allow for uh, things to move into place for the end times. We may be that generation. We don't know, and we'll just have to wait and see. But, Father, we do pray that you would uh, not let any circumstances deter us from our focus on our walk with you and learning your word and internalizing it, that everything that we do will be to your praise and glory. And, Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you have noticed it or paid attention to the news in the last several months, but uh, there has been, this is sort of a warning statement for you to protect you. 
there has been um, a, a movement of Iran, which is ancient Persia, closer to the Russians. In fact, the Russians are now using Iranian um, uh, drones and as, as suicide, kamikaze drones, to attack Ukraine. And then at the same time, we have a president who has entered into negotiations with Iran to try to restrain their pursuit of nuclear weapons and and what what they're going to come up with is worse than anything they ever had before. It's not going to do anything. And my point is that what you're going to hear is you're going to hear uh, Bible teachers, uh, they may be well-intentioned, but they're just wrong, who are going to make a big deal out of this because for some say for the first time in history, and that's probably true, you, you're seeing something of an alliance between Persia and Russia that appears to be something that could fit Ezekiel 38 and 39. And so you're going to hear people talk about that, and, and, and you know, it's just what I'm beginning to call it prophecy porn, it's just to, to get everybody all worked up, up over this. And I will continue to quote Dr. Fruchtenbaum when I asked him if there was any anything to any of this. This was six months ago. He said, wait and see. You don't know. And, and I don't understand how anybody can go out and say, well, you know, let's, let's get all focused on this. Let's talk about how people can live the Christian life. Let's talk about how they can apply the Word of God to their thinking and to what they say and to what they're doing and to their families and to their involvement in their uh, lives of their kids and their grandkids and be, speaking truth as we're studying in Ephesians on Sunday morning, speaking truth uh, with his neighbor, with other believers, talking about the gospel and talking about the word of God. That's our focal point. So we're in the word of God tonight in Philippians chapter 1. And Philippians chapter 1 is divided into uh, two basic sections. You have the primary introduction that is from... um, you know, the salutation in 1-1 one, one, and 1-2, one, then the primary introduction, which is verse 3, uh, down through verse 11, and that's divided into two parts. And then you have a more personal introduction from the uh, dealing with uh, the Apostle Paul's personal circumstances that begins in verse 12 and goes down to verse 26. And I had thought that I would take the time tonight to not only review what we've covered in the last 11 verses, but get to give us a preview, an overview of 12 through 26. But then when I got close to uh, pulling the last part of it together, I thought, no, we're not going to get there. We're just going to go through this in terms of a review. So what I want to do tonight is basically complete the exegesis of Philippians 1, 10, and 11. I've touched on this, but there's a few things I want to, I want to pull together for everyone. And then we're going to look at a summary of 1, 3 through 11 because there's a trajectory here. And that trajectory is one that I have pointed out uh, twice before, and that is that in verse 6 we read, uh, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
And I've pointed out that the day of Jesus Christ is a phrase that refers to the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll talk about that by way of review. But that is the future. That is the end game for believers. That is when we are evaluated in terms of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth in this life and rewarded. And those rewards have to do with our future roles and responsibilities in the Messianic kingdom. But that's not the only place that is mentioned. At the end of verse 10, uh, Paul says that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So again, he brings that up. So, so a theme that runs through this is what I titled this message, and that is living with the end in mind. As I've often said, when I go to a restaurant, I like to look at, a, at, at the menu and see what the dessert is in case there's something there I just have to have. And then I'm going to uh, choose my main course appropriately so that I have, I'm ready for that dessert. Went to a restaurant, or thought about going to a restaurant yesterday for lunch, and they had one thing on the menu for dessert, and it was not something that I would be enticed by ever. And so I knew that I did not have to worry about that. But we have to begin with the end in mind, and we have to live with the end in mind. So we're going to complete the exegesis of Philippians 1, 10 to 11, and then that will easily transition into going back and summarizing what we've learned in verses 3 through 11. And then we're going to review the timeline of the day of Christ, which is the judgment seat of Christ. And I got an email this morning from someone asking several questions, and I said, Basically, to answer those questions would take a lot of time, so if you listen tonight, they'll all get answered. So we're going to go back and say a few things about the timeline there and review the judgment seat of Christ. So that's, that's basically what we're going to, uh, what we're going to be looking at. I think I, in the opening slide, I, as I went through it, I reversed the bottom two, so we'll review the judgment seat of Christ first, then look at the timeline. So that gives us our structure. Okay, completing the exegesis of 1, 10 through 11. A lot of this we've already talked about, but I want to um, uh, tie a ribbon on it, as it were. So Paul gives a specific statement about prayer. If you notice back in verse 3, he talks about his thankfulness, his gratitude toward God. And whenever we read the Apostle Paul's prayers, we ought to think about how is he structuring his prayer? I mean, if you're going to pattern your prayers after somebody, it's a good idea. You can pattern them after David in the Psalms, or you can pattern them after the Apostle Paul's prayers in the uh, New Testament epistles. Uh, I wouldn't pattern them after my prayers or your grandfather's prayers or your somebody else's prayers. I think we ought to go to the Scripture, and that gives us a good pattern. And so he begins with thanksgiving that we should... He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And then he talks about that, that the focus of what he is thankful for is covered in verses 4 through 8. And then verse 9, he, there's a clear break in the way he is structuring it. He says, and this I pray. So obviously he's 
adding something that he's praying for, not something he's just thankful for. And he says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That first purpose that you may approve or evaluate, actually would be the better translation, that you may evaluate the things that are excellent with a further goal that you may be sincere, which is more the idea of being um, uh, pure in fellowship and without offense till the day of Christ. We'll talk about that in a, a little bit later. Uh, being filled or having already been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So just a little review of what we learned in our study, the last two lessons on Christian love. I don't know about you, but as I put it together this time, there were some things that occurred to me that I had not taught before or that I had not actually heard anybody teach, although it's not foreign to what we've usually taught. It's just bringing out a couple of new points. And the first is that this this really is Christian love. I've toyed here and there with other terms to use, biblical love, but biblical love would include the whole Bible. And there's a difference between Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself, and what Christ says in Leviticus 13.34 and 35, which is, you shall love one another as I have loved you. It's a totally different standard. The standard in the Old Testament is to love your neighbor like you love yourself. And in the New Testament, it's to love other believers, one another, like you, uh, like Christ has loved us. So it's a much higher standard. It's much more difficult. In fact, it's impossible. So Christian love is something that is distinctive to the church age. It's the ultimate indication of the fact that we are disciples. Jesus says, by your love, all men will know that you are my disciples. Not that all men will know that you are believers. And I pointed out that the problem is, and I remember struggling with this as I read different people when I was um, in the years between college and seminary, thinking about uh, going to seminary and trying to understand some things in the Scripture. And one person would say that that all believers are disciples, and then the next person would say that that there are two categories of believers. There are those who are simply saved They have trusted Christ as Savior, and they have eternal life, and they're members of the royal family of God and the body of Christ, but they're not going anywhere. And sometimes it may not even be much their fault, but sometimes they're just uh, like the thief on the cross. They ran out of time, or they may be in a situation where uh, there's nobody around who knows anything beyond the gospel, and that's all they have have, uh, time to get and all they could get. So so there are those who believe in Christ. They are born. They, they are alive. They're, there's the new birth. But because there's no feeding or nourishing or no desire for feeding or nourishing, then there is no growth. Uh, so a disciple, the term mathetes refers to someone who is a student, someone who's a learner, someone who's saying, okay, I'm a new creature in Christ. I want to find out what that's about. I want to learn what happened at salvation, 
why it was necessary. I want to learn everything I can about Jesus Christ. I want to learn everything I can about the Bible. I want to learn everything I can so that I can grow and mature to be, be a Christian. That is a disciple. And we've seen in the Gospels that there were disciples who left Jesus. They grew to sort of a first-grade education and said, well, I'm satisfied. Just like you look out in a regular culture, you'll see a lot of people who make that decision. They get a seventh-grade education. They drop out of school. They're happy. They're satisfied. Others get a 10th grade education or they get a high school degree and that's they're satisfied and then there are others who go on and they spend the rest of their lives accumulating knowledge and degrees so there's different different things uh, related to different people so the disciple is the one who is going to grow in John chapter 6 after Jesus had uh, talked to the crowd, they all left him but the 12. And Jesus turned around and said to them, why are you guys still with me? And Peter said, well, you're the only one that has words of eternal life. Everybody else had left. And that's a paradigm for the fact that the more you teach the Bible and the more in-depth you go in the Bible, the more Christ-like you're really going to be in that people are going to say, well, that's too deep for me. I just want to know a little bit, and um, and I'll be happy. I just want to feel good when I leave church. I, I want to know that I can um, that I have a future in heaven, but all that other stuff is just too much for me. And that's what happened in John six, and they all left Jesus. I mean, he's the best teacher in the world. He he doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't uh, say the wrong thing. He doesn't misremember anything. He's the perfect teacher, and nearly everybody left him. I take great courage, encouragement from that. Uh, Christian love is the ultimate indication of the fact that we are disciples. We're learning the word, applying the word, growing as believers in Christ, and we're, because we're walking by means of the Spirit, we're walking in the light, and we're abiding in Christ and the other synonymous phrases. Second, we learn that Christian love is a mental attitude. It's a mindset. It is a way of thinking. It is not an emotion. And it develops as a product of God the Holy Spirit. It's listed there in Galatians 5:22 and following as the fruit part of the fruit singular verb, I mean singular noun, fruit of the spirit, and that is produced by spiritual growth uh, through your spiritual life and your walk by means of the spirit in Galatians 5:16. Uh, Third, we see that Christian love develops along with knowledge and discernment here. It's very important. I pray that your love may abound still more. There's a growth to it. It's not all at once. It it, it grows incrementally, and it grows in connection with knowledge and discernment. Now, what's interesting here is that the word for knowledge is that word epinosis. And we've all heard that word a lot, and there's a lot of... Uh, debate in some places over the exact meaning of epinosis. In some ways, it's synonymous with just the root word gnosis. It's gnosis plus the prefix epi, which means it's added something to it. It's intensified it. As uh, Lightfoot said, it has a larger and more thorough knowledge. 
but a larger and more thorough knowledge of what. And it is usually the object is the knowledge of God or the knowledge of his word. It is to know God more intimately, as um, Harold Honer says in his commentary on Ephesians. He says this corresponds very closely with Colossians 1, 9 through 10, where Paul prays that they will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, similar to this passage, and further they will increase in the knowledge, epinosis, the knowledge about God. Uh, a Anglican Greek scholar by the name of C.F.D. Moule said that it's the perception of God's will or the recognition of him in his self-revelation in Jesus Christ. This kind of knowledge is a more intimate knowledge of God and his word where we learn God's will and how we should think, speak, and live. So Christian love develops along with that kind of knowledge and also with discernment, which is the idea of insight into the reality of situations so that we can wisely apply the word. And uh, I, I like to, I always remember the Hebrew word for discernment is the word being because you have to decide between two things. And that's a good idea. Discernment gives you the ability to decide between different options as to what is more excellent according to this particular passage. We'll come back to talk about that in a minute. Uh, fourth, since Christian love is produced by the Holy Spirit, it is not to be confused with the kind of love that can be practiced by unbelievers. If an unbeliever can do it, it's not the kind of love the Bible is talking about because this is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think that's a new thought for some people, that when you're walking by the Spirit, he's producing the fruit of, fruit of the Spirit in your life, and that's distinctive. When you're walking according to the sin nature, you may have a more informed love and some form of a mental attitude love just like a lot of unbelievers but it's not the fruit of the spirit because you're walking according to your sin nature um, so the carnal believer cannot manifest the genuine fruit of the spirit when walking according to the sin nature the major characteristic of the sin nature is self-love so how in the world can you be producing Christian love when the orientation of a, your carnality is self-love? That's mutually exclusive. So I had an attempted definition. Love is a mental attitude toward others which desires the best for them according to the standards of God's integrity, not according to my, what I want or what somebody else wants or anybody else thinks which shows that you have to have a good understanding of the essence of God and God's righteousness and justice and God's will for somebody so that you can want what God wants for them, not what you want for them. Biblical love is not based on the attributes of the person loved, how nice they look, how well they dressed, how educated they are, how uh, fine their vocabulary is, as nice as all those qualities might be. It's based on the integrity of God and because of the integrity of God, we are able to then uh, do what is best for others. 
Philippians 1, 9 through 11 then goes on to say that this love, this agape love, which is God's love for all mankind, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son, and it's the kind of love that each believer develops through walking by the Spirit, that your Christian love may abound still more and more in intimate knowledge of God and his will and ways, which means you know the Bible, and all insight into uh, decision-making. And then verse 10 says, that you may approve the things that are excellent. That word for approval is the uh, verb. It's, it's an infinitive of purpose. So it's expressing the purpose of the love, growing in knowledge, this, this wise and discerning love. Notice all of the words that we have here, uh, knowledge and discernment and uh Approval or evaluation is really the best word for it. These are all words related to the, the workings of the, of the mind. They're not emotional words. We don't evaluate things by emotion. I mean, some people do because that's all they have. But, but we, we don't. We, we, knowledge and discernment and evaluation are all based on thinking, all based on the function of the mind and the intellect, not emotions. That you may approve the things that are uh, excellent. Now, this is an interesting word I didn't spend a lot of time on. It basically means that which is best over that which is good. It is a word that indicates uh, looking for that which is superior and it has the idea here that you may approve the things that are excellent. What are the things that are excellent in terms of what we're deciding for as far as priorities are concerned? It's that which has eternal value, not that which is just good for the day or just going to give me pleasure for now, but that which has uh, eternal significance, focusing on the end game. See, that wraps it up contextually because both in verse 6 and in verse 10, we have this emphasis on living in light of the day of Christ. So when we're choosing between that which is good and that which is better, the frame of reference needs to be the long-term end game of the day of Christ and how we're going to be evaluated uh, before the judgment seat of Christ. So this is the focus here, that the, the, the knowledgeable, discerning love is for the purpose of approving that which is excellent. That tells you what comes first. You have to grow in your love in order to get to the point where you are approving the things that are excellent. So there's a, a process there. And then we get to verse 11, and it says, having already be, been filled, and this is the word plerao, having already been filled, indicates uh, it's a per- notice it's a perfect pass middle passive middle or passive participle the main verb is the verb up here that you may be you may be is a present tense verb a basic simple rule in uh, greek participles that i learned when i was in high school before i ever knew greek because i sat in bible class and heard it explained like you're hearing it now is that a Past tense participle 
that is with a present tense verb, the action of the participle precedes the action of the present tense verb. Now, there's two past tenses in Greek. There's the aorist, actually three. There's the aorist, the imperfect, but there's no imperfect participle. There's the aorist, and there's the perfect. Perfect is completed action. So it's talking about something that's already been accomplished in terms of what? This fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ to the glory of God. Now, we have to think a little bit about this because the process of growing in love is for the purpose of approving that which is excellent, that which is beneficial and valuable at the judgment seat of Christ for the purpose that you may be pure or unsullied and without blame. That simply means that you've lived your life in a way that that when you're at the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be rewards. First uh, Corinthians 3.15 says that there are those that are going to have all of their works burned up, but they'll be saved as with, but, uh, as with fire. Excuse me. They'll be saved as with fire. In other words, they get into heaven by God's grace, but they never did anything that had any eternal value. They were never walking by the Spirit, and so there's nothing rewardable. And there are going to be a lot of believers like that for a lot of different reasons. And um, and so that's what this is talking about when it talks about that you may be pure, unsullied, or without blame till the day of Christ. There won't there there will be that which is burned up, that is not burned up, will be gold, gold, silver, and precious stones. But that's in the future. So this is a timeline. I'm going to reverse it for me. So here's the beginning. You're born here. You die here. You have the judgment seat of Christ here. Okay, so the perspective is that you may approve now in your life that you may be pure and uh, pure or unsullied without blame till the day of Christ, which is way down here. So this is a far future event, the day of Christ. Then it says, having already been filled with the works of righteousness. Those works of righteousness are done back here because you've gone to this future event and you're, you, the perfect tense takes you to that which is completed before that future event. So it's taking you back to what you've done in your life. Now, this is interesting because as I was reviewing what I have, uh, what I've taught over the last several weeks, and I'm looking at this in terms of, in terms of the, the structure of this section. It became clear to me as I'm thinking about this that you ha- we have to understand the fruits of righteousness in terms of the context. Let's not jump like almost everybody does and I've done and others have done and fruits of righteousness and you connect it to uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's just stop here. The fruits of righteousness. What are the fruits of righteousness that Paul has been talking about in the lives of these Philippian believers. Well, if we just go back to verse 5, 
Okay, remember, he thanks. This is where we start to shift a little bit from the exegesis of Philippians 1, 10, and 11 to our summary of 3 to 11, because it naturally flows. So we're really headed for verse 5. But he starts off thanking God every time he remembers the Philippians. And he says, always in every prayer. Now, that's really piling up every, always in every He's saying, I pray for you guys a lot. Every time I think of you and even more, making requests for you with joy. I am I, so joyful when I think about you that I thank God for you and I pray for you. Why? This is how I translate it, for your partnership. And it's a financial partnership. It's that Greek word we'll look at on the next slide, koinonia which in some passages actually has the idea of financial, uh, like a joint financial partnership. So for it's your financial partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Remember what we covered is that after Paul left uh, Philippi, he went to Thessalonica, met a lot of opposition there, wasn't there for very long, maybe not more than two or three months at the longest. And... Uh, but the, he, but he says that the Philippians were the f- only ones who sent him financial aid to help support him. So that's what he's talking about is, wow, you guys sent money. And we learn from Second uh, Corinthians that they gave from their poverty. They didn't give from their abundance. They didn't have much, but they gave... Wh- what they didn't really afford to, uh, what they really couldn't afford to give. So they're confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work of financial partnership in you, this isn't the Calvinist idea that God begins a work at you of salvation and he inevitably will sanctify you and mature you so that perseverance of the saints is, uh, not is that God is going to persevere in your growth, and that's how you know you're saved. We talked all about that, and you need to go back to about uh, lesson 10 or 11 or 12 to to understand that, that he who has begun a good work of financial partnership in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. See, if he's just talking about your spiritual life, he'll complete it until the day he takes you home when you die. But he's going to continue this until the day of Christ because the Philippians supported Paul. Paul went out and he went to the, and he evangelized in Berea. And he evangelized in Athens. There were a few that believed in Athens. And he goes to Corinth and then he goes to Ephesus. And all this time he's being uh, financially supported in part by the Philippians. So they're producing, Paul is producing fruit from their financial contributions. And guess what? Along the way, he runs into Apollos, and Apollos has to understand the gospel correctly. And so Apollos is going to be a disciple of Paul, is going to be mentored by Paul, and and he's going to go on and pastor. Timothy's going to go on and pastor. And they're going to impact pastors. And it's going to go on from generation to generation. And so all of that accrues to the Philippians. So it goes until the day of Christ. 
So we look at what we're doing as a church, a West Houston Bible church. We have been financially supporting Chafer Theological Seminary since the day we started. We've been financially supporting Jim uh, Myers and James Myers ministry since the day we started. Along the way, we have picked up a couple of others. We are now for the last year or year and a half, we've been supporting Builders of Israel with Raleigh Morris. We've been supporting um, Mark Perkins, uh, who's in Tahiti. Uh, we have looked at some others. We're looking at some others that we can pick up uh, for financial support. And the fruit of their ministry, those that they're ministering to, we participate in that. That's part of that which is rewardable for us at the judgment seat of Christ. It goes on to the next generation and next generation and next. We're going to be paupers of the Jesus comes back tomorrow. Look at those Philippians. They've had uh, 2,000 years. And they're going to be extremely wealthy, and we're just going to sit there going, well, we got short change. We were the last generation. I'm just kidding. So that's what Paul's talking about here. The context is talking about this good work of their financial partnership in Paul's ministry. That's the works of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness that he's talking about in context. Now, we can... Uh, Apply that in some other ways. There are many ways that that, uh, that can be developed, which, I, which is what I've just done. Uh, but that's what he's talking about. And so he says, um, just as it's right for me to think this of you all, because I have you on my mind, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partners with me of grace. That's that same word dealing with koinonia. In one five, that's the word koinonia. And the basic idea here is a participation with one another toward a common goal. That is sharing the load with others in reaching a common uh, destiny. It's a partnership in going forward. It, it, fellowship isn't something where you say, we, we, we know what we mean, but we don't always know what we mean. We say, well, I'm in fellowship. That makes it a passive concept. It's an active concept. It's an active partnering with God and with one another toward the goal of developing the gospel in, in the broad sense of the gospel, not just telling people how to get to heaven when they die, but telling people the good news of the abundant life with Christ, which is related to discipleship. So in Philippians 1.7, where it talks about you all are partakers with me of Christ, that's the word soon koinonia, where you take the S-U-G, which when you put a G next to a K, it turns into an N. Um, that's a compound word for uh, to intensify partakers with. And then you have koinonia again, no church shared with me. That's Philippians 4.15, where it clearly has a financial connotation at the uh, close of this epistle. So Paul uses koinonia and soon koinonia as key words which focus on the Philippians' financial contribution and partnership for the expansion of the gospel ministry. That is tremendous. So when we get down here and we say in verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent 
its primary contextual meaning is making the right choices with how you're investing your money in terms of ministry. But also it's the idea that, that beyond that, the things that are excellent in terms of that which will be rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ, at the day of Christ. So since we've hit the day of Christ twice, we need to review that briefly as we go forward in our summary, what the Bible teaches about the day of Christ. Now, the first point I made when we covered this is that the day of Christ is different from the term day of the Lord. There's the day of Christ. There's um, a couple of other terms related to day of Christ as opposed to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's an Old Testament term, an Old Testament term that relates to judgment, God's judgment on Israel in light of the um, five stages of divine discipline in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. The day of Christ is a New Testament term, and it is a reference to the time when Christ will come for the church. The Bible teaches that God has one plan for Israel and one plan for the church. We'll get to this when we close, but we see that most significantly in Daniel chapter 9 when God sets out a timetable and says, I have decreed uh, 70 times 7 periods of time for you and your people, Daniel. Well, your people are the Jews, so there's a timeline laid down there. We'll get to that before we close tonight. So the day of Christ is when Christ comes for the church, and we've studied this in Ephesians, and, and I never realized, I always wondered this. As a student of church history, I am aware of the significance of, of um, John Nelson Darby in the 19th century as he took various things that had been taught for centuries. Uh, uh, that um, Bill can't remember his last name now, in uh, Dispensationalism Before Darby. Bill, yeah, Barb's over here going, I can't remember it either. William Watson, Bill Watson, um, uh, uh, detailed this in excruciating detail how pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor all through the late 1500s and 1600s in England came to an understanding that of this distinction between the church and Israel and that the church would not go through the future wrath, Jacob, time of Jacob's wrath. The title, Jacob's wrath, it's for Israel. It is not for the church. God is not going to have the church go through the rapture. We'll talk about that a little, little more in a minute. The day of Christ is when Christ comes for his own at the rapture of the church, which is then immediately followed by the judgment seat of Christ when we are rewarded. And all of this takes place in, in human terms, probably in a nanosecond, but in divine terms, it, there's no timeline in, in heaven, so it's going to, however long it takes, it's going to take, but it's not on a human time clock. This is mentioned two major passages, or Second Corinthians five nine ten and eleven, as the first one, and then First Corinthians three ten through fifteen as the second one. In Second Corinthians five ten, we read, "For we must all 
all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, church-age believers. This does not include Israel. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So it's verse 10 that's so important. The judgment seat of Christ is just the the Greek word bima. The bima is a word that referred to the seat where the tribunal would sit, where the magistrate would sit, uh, where the judges at the Olympics would sit. It was a raised platform or raised seat. You go to a synagogue, and up at the front, the area where we have at the front where the pulpit is and we're up on a step, uh, this would be called the bima in a synagogue. It's a raised platform. 1 Corinthians 3.10 tells us that uh, by way of analogy, Paul uses the analogy of building, that he is uh, analogous to a wise master builder. He's got the architectural plans, and the first thing you do is you lay the foundation. And the foundation, he says in verse 11, is Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the foundation of the individual spiritual life. And he says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed. There, is, there he shifts to talking about the individual building on it. The in, let each one take heed how he builds on it, for there's no other foundation laid than that which is Jesus Christ. So the eye is the Apostle Paul. The foundation of the building is Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 1, 8, he then says, or 1, 6, he says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the rapture, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do you get, does that frame phrase sound familiar, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same language he's using in in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, that we may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So if anyone's work, which he has built on it, so that tells you, some people try to make this corporate. It's not corporate, it's individual. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures... Endures what? Endures the evaluation. He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. So what you have here, I think I skipped one. I did. Uh, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. It's not, nobody knows. We all have done a a huge pile of stuff. Some of it's wood, hay, and straw. Some of it we did in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and it has enduring value for eternity. But we can't discern which is which. It will only be evident at, at the judgment seat of Christ. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. 
and the fire will test. That's dokimas. It's relate, the noun related to dokimazo. It, it has that idea of evaluation. The fire will evaluate each one's work of what kind it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, what would endure? Gold, silver, precious stones. He'll receive a reward. Some people, they're going to have just a treasure chest full of gold, silver, and precious stones. Other people are going to have just a handful of some gold coins. And on that basis, they're rewarded in terms of their position, their ruling and reigning position with Christ in the kingdom. But some are going to have everything burn up. But that doesn't mean they, they, aren't, they weren't saved or they'll lose their salvation. It just meant they didn't go anywhere in terms of spiritual growth. So there's nothing rewardable. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Now, this is really important because I had this question come in via email today, and it relates to this, is that there are two categories of Christians. There are those who are going to be rewarded and those who aren't. Those who are rewarded are called overcomers. We always have to look at passages in Scripture and ask the question, is this talking about believers Is this talking about believers comparing believers who are growing with those who aren't? In other words, spiritual believers with carnal believers. That's 1 John. Or is this comparing believers with unbelievers? Now, there's a big debate over uh, what's going on in 1 John. 1 John, the lordship or the high Calvinist interpretation is that it's contrasting uh, true believers with false believers, unbelievers. They're not true believers. So how do you know if you're really saved? Well, if these characteristics of the believer are in your life, then you were saved. But if not, you just have a false belief. You're not really saved. That's their view. And so the conclusion that overcomer is something that's every believer is consistent with that view. Now, there are a lot of people in the free grace camp who think that's the interpretation of overcomer. But but every comparison and contrast in First John has to be between either everyone's believer, spiritual versus carnal, or every contrast is believer versus unbeliever. It's one or the other for the whole book. And when you come along and you take overcomer and say, no, wait a minute, that those passages are hard. That really looks like that's contrasting the ones who aren't saved with the ones who are saved. Well... John was consistent. Just because it's difficult for un- us to be understand his consistency doesn't mean he wasn't. So we, we have to stay within the same school. So this is saying there's two categories. Those who are all are saved, some have rewards, some don't. And, but of those who are, are, uh, have no rewards, they'll be saved, sozo. They'll be saved. They're justified. They're going to have eternal life. They're going to be present in the kingdom. They are going to be in with the Lord forever and ever. So you have one group with rewards. The other group has no rewards, but all are saved because Christ paid the penalty for every sin. So they're saved from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. So then we talked about the two different kinds of heirs in Romans 8:17 and this really goes back to understanding punctuation. If children then heirs and I put an in dash in there. 
heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, comma. That indicates you, in this punctuation, uh, without a comma after God, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ appears to be the same, that they're synonymous. But that's because it's punctuated that way, but there's no punctuation in the Greek. Commas are important. Time to eat children. Whoop, commas save lives. Time to eat, comma, children. Not the same. So I pointed out when we went through this that in the original King James punctuation, they recognized, they said, then heirs, comma, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ. They understood that these were two different types of inheritance, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ. You look at modern translations, it'll say heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ as if they're synonyms. It all depends on the in, the interpreter, the, the translator, as to what he thinks is being said. His theology will come come to play here. So I've got these comma, that comma and that colon right here. And you can see it in the uh, original of the King James. So in the New American Standard, notice it says, if children, comma, heirs also, comma, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. They're the same. They're synonymous. That's their interpretation. In the World English Bible, the WEB, and the American Standard Version, it's almost identical to the old King James, except they have a semicolon after Christ here instead of a colon. Then in the ESV and NIV, it it tries to set it apart. He uses an M dash, and it's heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, but because there's no comma between heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, they see them as being synonymous. Here's how that looks. So what we should have is not this, but this. If children, then heirs of God, comma, that's one category, and joint heirs with Christ, no comma, no colon, like the King James had a colon there, and um, ASV had a semicolon there. There's no punctuation there. Your heirs of God is the first category. That's every believer is an heir of God. Joint heirs with Christ is conditioned upon suffering with him. Now, if salvation is not by works, how can you say you're, you're saved, or, or, you know, that that's conditioned upon suffering with him? So being an heir of God is apart from works. That's what we all get. We're trust in Christ. We're saved not by works, but by Christ's death on the cross. And then if we suffer with him, and Jesus, I mean, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that all who desire to be godly will be persecuted. There's going to be some level of suffering. You may not realize it in your life, but but Satan has a target on your back if you're a believer. And so you're going to suffer, as Shakespeare put it, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in your life, whether you know it or not, just because you're a believer. And so if you are growing and maturing as a disciple, you're going. there's going to be 
suffering, per, uh, persecution uh, in your life that is going to be the basis for your obedience to the Lord and receiving rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So that makes it very, very clear. And the conclusion we had from this is that every Christian builds on the foundation of their salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is the promised and prophesied Messiah who, like the Passover lamb, died as a sacrifice. That's the foundation. Uh, we build with moral works, which God has nothing to do with. That's wood, hay, and straw. Or we build, we build by walking by the Spirit, and those divinely enabled works have eternal value. That's gold, silver, and precious stone. And in this life, we can't determine which is which. And so uh, we wait to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ so don't lose any sleep over it. So now let's review the timeline on the day of Christ. So here's the church age. We're in the church age. Some people think that we're very close to the end. I remember in Sunday school when I was a kid, they'd say, we're right here, right at the end. Well, we're still right there, right at the end. We just don't know how how close that is. We don't know the scale of that rectangle. The church age ends with the rapture of the church, and immediately after we have the Bema seat. That's the timeline. Then there's the tribulation. Now you're going to say, well, how do you know that? I'll give you scripture on this in just a minute. Then we have the tribulation. Then we have the millennial kingdom. Now, seven times in Revelation chapter 20, it uses the phrase a thousand years. And it primarily relates to the thousand years that Satan is incarcerated in the abyss. A thousand years. A thousand years. Seven times it mentions a thousand years. Now, every other number in the book of Revelation should be taken literally and is taken literally. And so this number should be taken literally too. But when the allegorists of origin in the 3rd century, 3rd to 4th century uh, A.D., followed by one of his, uh, one of the men who followed him was Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. They instituted an allegorical interpretation so that the literal meaning was irrelevant. It's the symbolic meaning that's good. But there's no real guards. There's no real uh, protections to make sure that you're always... Uh, interpreting the same thing the same way. But if you're talking about the literal number of a 1,000, it always means a 1,000. It always means a 1,000 years. The numbers are always taken literally. So this is a 1,000-year rule and reign of Christ. It ends with the second resurrection. This is the resurrection of the unsaved. And the unsaved dead are then brought before the great white throne judgment, and they are judged based on their works but their works cannot add up to the righteousness of Christ. And so they aren't saved because the only way to get into heaven is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And then we go into the eternal state. Now, how do I know that that the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ precede the tribulation? We have to, first of all, understand a couple of things. First of all, some names for the tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble which emphasizes it's for Israel, and it's seven years long, which is indicated in all the numbers in Revelation 3. The first half is called three and a half years, 
and the second half is called three and a half years, and uh, many all the other numbers all add up. And so what we have is a situation before the tribulation begins, which tells us that the judgment seat of Christ has already taken place. In Revelation 4.4, 4, there's a scene in heaven. John has been taken up to heaven, which I think is uh, symbolic of the rapture. And he says that he sees the throne of God, and surrounding the throne of God are 24 thrones. And on those thrones are 24 elders. Now, some people think, well, are they Israel? Are they angels? What are they? Well, they can't be angels, and I'll show you that in a minute. And they can't be Israel because the, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints doesn't occur to the end of the time period set out for Israel. So I saw 24 elders. They, they must be the church. How do we know that? They are clothed in white robes, and white robes were promised to overcomers in the seven letters to the seven churches as part of their rewards. And they had crowns, and the word for crown is stephanos. Now, that's really important because there are only two words in Greek for crown. Diademos is a word for the crown of a ruler. But a Stephanos crown is the crown that was given to a victor in the races, in the Olympics. Somebody who had achieved a victory in military was given a Stephanos crown. It's an, an award or a reward. They had crowns of gold on their heads. They're not rulers. They have achieved something. They've been rewarded. In verse 10, it says, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their thrones, Stephanos, again, before the throne, saying. Now, look at what we have in a number of verses in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 9:25. Paul is talking about uh, using a literal analogy of those who run in a race, say that they run the race to obtain a perishable crown, it's a Stephanos. See, that shows you that Stephanos means a perishable crown. It's the reward for having achieved something. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, Stephanos. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown? Stephanos. Paul saying in both passages, You people are my reward. Okay. Second Timothy 4.8, there is laid up for me the crown, Stephanos, of righteousness. That's one type of award. In James 1.12, he will receive the crown of life. That's another kind. It's a Stephanos crown. None of these are diademos crowns. First Peter 5.4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown, Stephanos, of glory that does not fade away. That's another reward. Revelation 2.10 also talks about the crown of life. There, in the, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Revelation 4.4 and 4.10 are talking about this group of 24 elders who fall down before the throne, and they already have been rewarded. They have their Stephanos crowns on. The only group of people that are rewarded by this time are the church that's been raptured. Now, why are they 24? Well, the best explanation is in the Old Testament, there were so many Levitical priests 
that you couldn't just have all of them serve at one time. So they were divided into 24 sections. And they would choose one from each section. So this is similar to that. You can't put every Christian around the throne of God. So you would divide the whole church into 24 and and then pick one from each group to serve before the throne. Now, in Revelation 5, 9, these 24 elders are singing a song. They're singing this song because there's been a search for someone who's worthy to take this scroll, seven seals sealing this scroll, these seven-sealed scroll out of the hand of God the Father. And they can't find anybody. And it says, and, and the angel is weeping because they can't find anybody worthy to take the scroll. And then the lion of the tribe of Judah comes forward, the lamb of God, and he takes the scroll because he alone is worthy. And so they sing this praise to him because he is worthy to take the scroll. Now, when he cuts the seals and opens the scroll, that's what starts the first, the series of judgments of the tribulation. And so the song they sing is you, meaning Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and you have redeemed us to God. Now, see, if angels are saying this, it's wrong because Jesus didn't die for the angels. Jesus only died for human beings. So these have to be human beings that are rewarded. Now, the only thing that that could possibly be is the raptured church. So he says, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. But, you know, there are some things, uh, Some there's one manuscript that says you have redeemed them to God. And that's in a number of modern translations, and it's based on only one manuscript. But they can't fit. If you don't believe in the rapture, you can't figure out who these people are. So you can't say you redeemed us because in their view, the, the us are the angels. And they know that, uh, I mean, the people saying this can only be angels, so angels can't be redeemed. So they have, they change it in one manuscript. And that is what's in a lot of Bibles. But it should be us. That's what's in the majority text, and that's what's in uh, most of the uh, Alexandrian text. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 10 and I'm not, I don't have time to go into all of this, but this is antiphonal. One group sings what's in verse 9. The angelic choir responds with this chorus and says, And you, meaning Christ, have made them, pointing to the church, the 24 elders, you have made them kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And that's the only thing that makes sense here, but it tells us that the church is already there. And you have to have the church distinct from Israel because God's plan for Israel was set forth in terms of a timeline in Daniel 24, seven, literally at 70 periods of seven. 70 times seven is 490 years. 490 years are set for your people and for your holy city. That's Jerusalem. And these six things are going to take place, and that is what takes place during the tribulation period. And so then God says to, or Gabriel says to Daniel, rather, uh, in verse 25, 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay, that only happened once. That was a decree in 444 B.C. by by um, Artaxerxes, sending Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls. And what does it mean by um, plaza, uh, plaza and moat? That's not in this translation. Um, restore and rebuild Jerusalem, blah, blah, blah. The street shall be built again and the walls. So uh, that that's a modern translation. The street shall be built again. That's referring to commerce in the city and the wall for defense, even in troublesome times. And then in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So there's a pause. The timeline goes day after day after week after week after month after month until those six, seven weeks and 62 weeks, or in other words, 69 years or 483 years are done. And that takes you right to the... Uh, time when Christ enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it says after that he's cut off. So the, God hits the pause button at 483 years. And what happens after that during the pause? The Messiah is cut off. The people of the prince who is to come, the Roman army comes and destroys the city and the sanctuary. That happened in A.D. 70, 40, approximately 40 years after the crucifixion. So it's still on a pause button. The end of it shall come with a flood, and the end of, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he, who can the he refer to? It has to refer to the prince who is to come. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, that last seven-year period. And he will confirm that covenant with many for one week, seven years. That's the last seven years of the 490 years decreed for Israel. 70 times 7 is 490 years. The last seven years hasn't been taken place yet. That's the seven years of the what we call the tribulation, Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. And as a result of that, um, the church isn't going to be here because it's not its purpose. God's going to deal with the church at the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to deal with Israel in the tribulation, the time of Jacob's wrath. So that brings us to the end. That's why we know that the judgment seat of Christ doesn't come at the end of the tribulation. It doesn't come at the end of the millennial kingdom. The only place it can come based on accurate, solid, literal, word-for-word exegesis of the text is in Revelation 4 and 5. It's already happened uh, at the judgment seat of Christ takes place immediately after the rapture, and the church is then present in the heavens. So that summarizes what we've done. Next time we'll come back. And everything that Paul develops in verses 12 to 26, which is the second half of the introduction, is built on what he said in 3 through 11. So we've laid the foundation. Now we're going to build on it. We'll see that next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and review these things and get them set in our minds so that we can move on and discover more that you've revealed to us in this wonderful book. Help us to uh, understand it, be challenged by it, and to live our lives in light of eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.